and welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutions starting from about 1839 in modern China. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. I am doing this podcast as sort of a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. The usual beginning announcements. You, if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can also join the substack at chineserevolutions.substack.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find the links to those at ChineseRevolutions.com. Please also send me an email, ChineseRevolutions at gmail.com. I'd love to see what you think. Also, uh, rate, review, subscribe on all podcast syndication platforms. You can also go to our website, again, ChineseRevolutions.com, to see uh, which syndication platforms are linked there. All right. This uh, last week we talked about Hong Xiuquan's visits, uh, visions, uh, visions. Well, uh, sort of visits from whatever he got his visions from. His divine mission to cleanse the world of evil and fight demons and all that sort of good fun stuff. Also, the Christian uh, tract collection that was giving him a world embracing story. Now, that's one of the funky things about the Taiping movement is that it was, a lot of its core materials are Protestant Christian stuff, but it has a very Chinese twist on it. And so this week we're talking about building the movement, some of the beginning important figures in the movement, and uh, we'll introduce Thistle Mountain, an area that we'll feature more in the next episode or two, where... For me, this is kind of one of the fun parts of the Taiping movement, where it's like they're, they're just kind of sitting around having these visions. Uh, nobody's getting hurt yet, so okay, great, just sitting around doing New Agey type things. Anyway, uh, this episode, uh, okay, again, we are drawing very heavily on God's Chinese Son by Jonathan Spence. And with that, I'd like to start with this this last paragraph from God's Chinese Son, uh, because it, per it perfectly sums everything up. Uh, the, coll the collection of tracts it's talking about is Good Words to Admonish the Age by Liang Afa. And so this kind of sums up a lot of Hong Xiuquan and what he, what's going on for him. The collection of tracts is long, full of strange terms and stranger names, and there are many things that Liang does not explain. But Hong feels the key has opened up his head and heart. The man with the golden beard, of whom he dreamed and for whom he fought the demons, is God the Father, the Lord Yehohua, who created heaven and earth, the elder brother, who shone the golden seal upon the demons, 
fought at Hong's side, yet scolded him severely as Jesus the Savior, Son of God, killed on the cross and returned again to heaven. The retainers who welcomed Hong and helped him in his heavenly battles are angels who live with God. The texts unrolled before his eyes and explained to him point by point are the words of Liang's, or the words of other sacred texts that Liang transcribed and summar or summarized. The evil one, Yan Luo, is the demon devil serpent who ruined the happy life of man and woman in their first idyllic garden. The sword with which Hong fought the, the demons is like the sword that guarded the eastern gate of paradise. God does speak directly to mankind, as he did to Moses on Mount Sinai, and as he has to Hong. Jesus, too, has lived and toiled upon the earth. The raging flood that almost swept away all living things is a sign of Hong's own destiny. His name, Hua, or fire, was tabooed because it was the middle name of God the Father. His new name, Chuan, complete or whole, begins, closes, and reverberates throughout the sacred texts. The Confucian examinations are worthless vanities, spreading false hopes, engendering false procedures. The foreigners, despite the opium and the wrath of some of their number, have good intentions and perhaps will save the land from death. Idols are evil and the festival days that mark the working Chinese year do not reflect the rhythms of worship due the, uh, the highest god. Sin ravages the world encouraged by false priests, the lustful, the pornographers. The cleansing rituals that Hong went through in heaven were foretellers of his baptism. There are legions of demons still to slay on earth, for evil has infiltrated all the human race. And since Jesus is the Son of God and also Hong's elder brother, then Hong is literally God's Chinese son. I, I mean, like, you know, like if this was a cartoon, that would be a fantastic beginning, but this is the beginning of something that's going to kill tens of millions of people. So, here we go. Uh... The so first, after Hong gets through all this, they they start these initiation rituals. So Hong and the guy who read good words to admonish the age with him, uh, they figure out a baptismal ritual from what the book says, and they baptize each other. They take these preliminary baptismal vows to pray to the true God, to keep away from idols, evil, evil spirits. They order these two double-edged swords made, each nine pounds, maybe uh, three kilograms, three feet long, about a meter. Uh, written on it is Sword for Exterminating Demons. I'd like to get one of those. Uh, friends and relatives think he's nuts, and they set a minder to watch him, like, but he converts the guy who's watching him. Summer, 1843. Lots of preaching, lots of conversing, lots of evangelizing the new faith. Two critical new adherents are Hong Rangan and Feng Yunshan, who we'll be hearing more about. And there's a public baptism ceremony. They, you know, screw this private stuff. We're, we're going out and doing it publicly. Uh, Hong Xiuquan is convinced that he's got the message. His new name, Chuan, is all throughout the tracts written by Liang Afa. One of the things about the Chinese language is it's broken down into s single morphemes that are strung together to you know, create words like 
two syllables, four syllables. And so you can have the same word show up in, like, different word chunks don't modify the word chunks that bec that come before or after. So Chinese is really able to uh, switch around word segments very easily because you don't like in in English, in and im both mean not. But like if the if it's im, it's coming before like before something like a p. Impossible. It like the the closed lip quality goes backwards into the n and it turns it into an m kind of thing. That doesn't really happen for Chinese. So you can so. Kind of what Hong Xiuquan is having happen for him here is he's seeing this name that he got in a dream, and wherever he sees it in these Chinese texts, it's just confirmation of this vision that he's had. That, you know, and then for somebody educated in the Chinese classics like him, it's it kind of works in the literary devices he would have picked up, you know, based on Chinese rhymes and things like that. Rhymes, alliteration, illusion, all that sort of thing. And mostly at this point, he's evangelizing family from other villages who are traveling on vi on business. And these family members start to take the message back home with them. So th this is one of the big things where a lot of his... Converts are going to come from. He is a very, is va a vast extended family, and I believe this is still true in South China, where they have extensive family records. South China, North China, it's like Europe was all one country and stayed that way. Uh, North and South, like I spent very little time in South China, so I this is. Like, if I could do another lifetime, I'd, you know, spend years in every different part of China to get to know it all. Uh, Hong Xiuquan and Hong Rangan uh, both are, both failed the civil service examinations, but they're still educated, smart, and good at what they do. Hong Rangan being smart and educated, he's going to come back in a big way much more down the line. So, their, their first target in you know fighting demons crushing idols they take down the tablets honoring confucius in their schools they're 2.37 feet high maybe two-thirds of a meter um, four inches wide 10 centimeters they're they're bright red with gold lettering model teacher of a myriad generations so that that's confucius and there are dimmer colored tablets you know, so not so bright, with the names of Confucius's most illustrious disciples. And depending on how rich the school is, there can be more tablets with more content on it. And so he takes these down. And so the reaction is the, the parents started pulling their children out of these schools. They heard about what was going on from their children. And so when when pupils are pulled out of school, the school income goes down. And the local community members who did pass civil service examinations, they confront Hong Xiuquan and his companions. 
And so there's kind of a poetry battle back and forth. Like, yes, it's very literate, very cultured, but there's a lot of anger going on. So, like, they write a poem of remonstrance to, uh, to Hong Xiuquan, and he writes back in the same poetic style, but he makes the opposite argument in the final line. And this is going to be one of the things that we're going to see as he gets on. Hong is very good at writing. They lose their jobs. They decide to hit the road before there's too much more trouble. So they're going to sell writing brushes and ink to pay for their journey, and they're going to preach their message along the way. So the so the guys hitting the road are Hong Xiuquan, Feng Yunshan, and two of Feng's relatives. Hong Rengan is stopped from going on this journey. He's beaten up by his family, separated from the core group until much later. And Okay, again, he's going to be a guy to watch out for. He's going to get some critical education, and he's going to learn English, and he's going to be a critical connection between the Taiping movement and foreigners. So let's talk about their trip. Their first stop is Canton. The city is—well, the, the combat from the Opium War is over, but the city is still roiling. There's anger against the Manchus. Like, is it— you know, they didn't save us, or nobody can forgive a failure. There's anger against the British for, you know, for sinking all the ships. So the British are, you know, even though according to the new treaties, uh, they can come into Canton, they're not going to push their luck. They're building up their base at Hong Kong now, which we'll feature later in our narratives. It's going to be a place where you know, Chinese are going to learn from foreigners. It's going to be out of the reach of Qing authority. And so these, these traveling preachers, they convert some relatives on one side of the family for one of the earliest converts. Uh, they, uh, they move, they move on and two, the two named figures are going on together and the two relatives of Feng go home to their families. I wonder if their names are even written down somewhere. Anyway, the so it's going to be Hong Xiuquan and Feng Yunshan carrying on. They get this idea to go to Guangxi, a rural region 250 miles or 400 kilometers west of where they were near Canton. I don't know if this is like, like uh, hiding a little bit or they just figure they need to do some more preaching. I've been I've been down to that very general area of China. It's very very mountainous. You know, when you see stories about China building all sorts of bridges over deep river gorges, that's that's where it is. Uh, this is now this was in Hubei province, a good bit north, but it's a similar it's similarly rugged. Like I saw the Suduhe Bridge over a Yangtze tributary over the Sudu River. Um, that thing was way, way high up. Like, I, I'm terrified of heights. I couldn't bear to look over. I couldn't look over at that thing. Um, I took a keen interest in the vegetable and herb garden somebody living near the bridge was growing in a, you know, rectangular pile of dirt piled up on the concrete there. I, I don't know if these people did maintenance or what, uh, but 
those herbs were much more interesting to look at than God that that deep river court is like it's like something's reaching up to pull me over or something. It's like, no, no, thank you. I'm not going over there. The guys I was, one of the guys I was with had this drone and he used it to take aerial photos of the bridge. We were, it was a press thing. Uh, so I'm not sure how they get away with using those things. Like it's, it's not a matter of permission. It's like, I'd be afraid to lose it, but yeah, he, he flew the thing up, got some cool pictures of the bridge. Um, I guess a drone is cheaper than hiring a helicopter and all that. Okay, the I counted like 60 seconds, over 60 seconds, for a truck to pass over this bridge versus, you know, before you have to find where you can cross, maybe loading and unloading your donkey or whatever you're using, getting on and off a boat, and you can't carry that much. Uh, whereas today, you just keep the truck loaded up, and it's much more powerful than any animal. So that's like, so this is like, so today you just stay on the road and it's a little footnote that the patch of road that you're going over is a huge suspension bridge. Um, before it'd be like, you hope you find a traversable track near the river. Um, many of China's diverse languages are the result of these very, very rugged areas. Like in Sichuan, I, I, went up into mountains barely traversable um you, you could get up there by on foot I, I wonder what animals could possibly get up there I mean, people have houses up there um you know like they they grow the food they need to eat up there um like i saw ladies carrying six packs of beer up there and was like okay they they do it but it's um you know, maybe that's one reason why they drink liquor like you get more oomph for less weight. Uh, China developed along navigable rivers because it was the easiest way to travel long distance. Uh, like it's it's paved smooth. You know, as long as the the water's deep enough for a boat, river ferries are basically the bus in some areas of China. Uh, there's a there's a book river town by peter hessler uh that's one of the features that like if you want to get up to the next town it's you have to go by boat um many uh, okay i just did that part okay so, so and so they they go to a village where they might know some people but they've never been there before they don't entirely know what they're doing, but they're just going to go. They need to get out of town. They need to get on with things. So they get help, and they make converts on the way. They they travel for 17 days, over 14 miles or 22.5 kilometers a day. Maximum human travel is walking about 20 miles a day, but you know, maybe there were you know, very hilly areas. Uh, Hong Xuchuan starts composing his own tracts when they get to the, the village where they're going. And he writes in easy-to-remember couplets, and he recasts the message of the original collection of tracts bound up as good words to admonish the age um, in terms of Chinese stories and points of cultural familiarity. He makes his own formulation of commandments, 
So the first one is against lust. The second one is always obey your parents. The third is never kill people. Fourth is don't steal. Fifth is stay away from witchcraft and magic. And the sixth is don't gamble. And he explains his commandments and what they do to the human being, how they anger God. And he brings in support from Chinese literature and philosophy, uh, examples from nature, common Chinese ethical understandings. The one that he really had to just drive home on his own authority was staying away from witchcraft and magic. The religious elements were formalized, like so a simple worship liturgy was formalized. They composed hymns, and he gave sermons. They regularized the baptismal ceremony, like a written or oral confession of sins, and if it's written, it's burned, and there's a baptismal and cleansing ceremony. And so, you know, they, they, and so he starts using his literature knowledge to write appeals to authorities, and he gets a, gets the son of a follower, I think it was, off for something. And he, he's out there for five months in Guangxi. And he's, so he's setting up these communities that are ready to hear more from him later. One of the things that's going to develop is he's going to have followings in separate areas. And so they're going to need to find ways to travel between each other without getting, you know, getting in trouble. So Feng Yunshan has gone off to another town and he started preaching on his own. He calls the movement the God-Worshipping Society. And so that's how it's going to be known in in the early years. Feng moves into the mountains among dispossessed Hakka people. Hakka are... They, they are Chinese, but they're kind of a little bit on the fringe of what's recognized as Chinese. This area... Uh, where he moved into drought and famine were putting additional pressure on already not so well off people. Banditry is also a problem. Rural areas are good places to hide. They're not regularly patrolled. Like the area that Hong Xiuquan is from was only very recently made a province or that the central government in Beijing had only recently taken more full appreciation of it. And uh, one of the sources of the increased banditry was that the British were wiping out pirates on the Chinese coast, so the pirates moved inland. And so, away from the city centers of prestige and authority, uh, that you know, some of the converts are miners from the Thistle Mountain area. Thistle Mountain is going to be big. Well, mountains are big. Um, the miners are actually going to come back in some of the warfare that they're going to be digging tunnels under walls and things like that. So stay tuned for that. Um, Carp so I took this list directly from the book by Jonathan Spence, God's Chinese Son. Carpenters, blacksmiths, rice flour grinders, traveling barbers and fortune tellers, sellers of medicine, salt, opium, bean curd, that's tofu, Boatmen, fuel gatherers, charcoal makers, herdsmen, peddlers, day laborers. So these are blue collar people. And this, uh, this Thistle Mountain period is going to be the next major phase of the Taiping movement. We're going to reveal additional people who get visions from Jesus, going to clarify political goals and as 
persecution from local authorities starts to heat up, they're going to stop being just a religious thing. They're going to start resisting persecution, armed uprising. And also, we're going to have to get into secret societies in operation at the time, something kind of something between the Masons and pirates. Um, also, secret societies are just fun. The Taiping movement is coming to full form in the context in this context with secret societies with secret passwords, like if bandits come out and you show the right hand signal, yeah, okay, you know, we won't rob you. So let's look at the... So as we close this episode today, let's look at the revolutionary qualities of the Taiping movement. Not revolutionary... Uh, yeah, revolutionary in the sense that we're meaning for this podcast, that this is a revolution. Isn't it nice if you can throw a revolution and everyone comes? Hong Xuquan is forming the ideology and the core leadership to direct the movement. He's he's building the rules for this new idea of society to form around. That you know, a revolution is a change of the rules. Well, he's building his rules. In the move to cleanse the world of evil, uh, rich and poor, Chinese, not Chinese, uh, educated, not educated, uh, white collar, blue collar. These divisions don't matter nearly as much as loyalty to the movement. So the so the poor and the dispossessed can get on board because it gives them something to do. It gives them significance. But then it's it, they challenge the established elites, and but you know elites they're going to become whatever the new regime wants them to be because the rules are changing. It's not based on whatever you were before. The The current regime has no legitimacy. There's no negotiation except as, as a tactic to get along. Foreigners, uh, are they offer possible ideological alignment. In this case, elements of religion came in from the outside, you know, so like when you see the Communist Party of China, they're going to be getting along with other communist countries. You know, but then also we're going to see that Chinese identity is very much going to take over, as does anything that takes root in China. That you know, when communism came to China, they weren't going to just be a satellite of the Soviet Union. They were going to do their own thing, because this is China, dang it. We run our own show. Um, so... Next week, we'll get into the Thistle Mountain period. Maybe the episode after that, we'll talk about secret societies in more detail. And so this has been this episode of Chinese Revolutions. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can join the Substack, chineserevolutions.substack.com. Please do send me an email, chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Uh, rate and review wherever you find your podcasts. And again, this has been Nathan Bennett.